1: Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to Not Real Art, the podcast where we talk to the world's most creative people. I am your host, faithful, trusty, loyal, tireless host, Sourdough, coming at you from Crew West Studio in Los Angeles. Man, do we have a great show for you today. Very interesting. We are talking to Dr. Ashfaq Ishak, the founder and chairman of the International Child Art Foundation. The greatest organization you might have never heard of. I never heard of them until I was able to link up with Dr. Ishak on LinkedIn and read about his organization. And it's quite a story. And I think you're really going to love it. But before we get into this interview, I want to, of course, thank you for tuning in. We do this for you. It's all about you. And we are so grateful for your loyalty and support. Of course, as always, Please go to our website, notrealart.com, and enjoy all the good, healthy stuff we got for you there. It's all free range, organic, gluten free art programming for you to enjoy. We're always publishing great content about new, amazing artists coming into our orbit. So please be sure to go to notrealart.com and check out all the good, healthy stuff we've got for you there. Okay, today we are talking International Child Art Foundation. Dr. Ashraf who's the founder and chairman of the ICAF and the ICAF serves American children as their national arts organization and the world's children as their global arts organization. Dr. Ishak has changed the world for children. The arts Olympiad he launched in 1997 has grown over the years into the world's largest school art program. hear that the world's largest school art program how cool is that in 1998 he produced a national children's art festival the first ever in u.s history and since 1999 as he produced the world's children's festival as the olympics of children's imagination the child art magazine he launched in 1998 has inspired hundreds Of thousands of young readers, teachers, and parents. Under his direction, ICAF has become a world leader in child art exhibitions and an organizer of children's panels at major conferences. To empower children, he instituted the World Children's Award, widely recognized as a global leader in children's art and a leading expert in children's creative and empathetic development. Dr. Ishak is a spokesperson for the world's children, a multidisciplinary thinker. His research has appeared in the Journal of Conflict Resolution, the UNESCO Observatory Journal, the National PTAs, Our Children, the State Education Standard, The Lancet, Cyber Therapy, Rehabilitation Journal. I could go on. He's co-authored a book on small-scale enterprises published by Oxford University Press in 1987, his 2013 book. The Creativity Revolution is available on Amazon. And before founding ICAF, he was the president of USA International Inc., associate professor of economics at George Washington University, and a researcher at the World Bank. My old job. Okay, so without further ado, let's get into this amazing story and hear from the one and only Dr. Ashfaq Ishak. Ashfaq, welcome to Not Real Art.
0: Scott, such a pleasure to be here with you.
1: It is, it is. The honor is all mine, my friend. As busy as you are to take time and come and share your important story with us, it's such an honor and I'm so grateful. The work you do is just, you've changed the world. I mean, a lot of people say that they're changing the world, and some people do. <laughs> and yet your life's work, it's clear that You are touching lives, children's lives all over the world, and that's God's work, my friend.
0: What an honor, and you know, I'm humbled, and I uh, truly appreciate you giving me this opportunity to be with you and to talk with you, and for our friends to listen in. Thank you so much.
1: Excellent, excellent. Well, okay, so getting right into this, for our friends listening— who may not know about your organization International Child Art Foundation which by the way I have to admit as many years as as you guys have been producing goodness in the world and touching lives you know the fact that you're working in the arts we're working in the arts I mean I just personally and I've been in the arts for 30 years myself I just personally learned about the International Child Art Foundation so so, shame on me um no 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 no, <laughs> no no, 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 tell us I mean tell you know for me, for our listeners, tell us what International Child Art Foundation is, the work it does, why it's important.
0: The International Child Art Foundation is one of the best kept secrets in washington d c
1: okay we never
0: we <laughs> never promote ourselves <laughs> over the past you know twenty five years, but Scott, I think to give you a little context, I think the important thing is to tell you what is it that I have learned over the past 25 years working with children from around the world and why is this new learning important for parents, teachers, artists and creatives in the U.S. and worldwide. So, if you'd like, I'd like to mention four things that I have learned. Please. First is the importance of democratizing creativity. To democratize creativity is more important now because of chat, GPT, and generative AI. So, we develop America as a nation of creators, not just as consumers. And now they will have the tools, they have the tools available to become creators, and we have to inspire them to become creators. And in particular, My deep concern is about the disadvantaged students who are attending Title I schools with low income, lowest income, lowest, you know, performance. And by the way, the Title I eligible schools are 54,632. 54,000, more than 54,000. 47% of all the public schools in the U.S. So we are not talking about a small demography, but we are really talking about half of the next generation, almost half of the next uh, generation. Their knowledge acquisition cannot compete that of private schools with very low student-teacher ratio where the teachers are also far more qualified than in the public schools in poor neighborhoods. So for these kids, creativity is their survival skill. They can level the playing field by becoming creative because the amount of knowledge that they have coming out of high school will never compare that with the knowledge that a private school student has or students from better uh, you know, performing public or charter schools. So this kid graduating from high school, what he or she can do is to creatively use the smaller knowledge that they have to solve the problems that they face. And perhaps Braze new trials, you know, through this creativity to disrupt the vicious cycle of intergenerational poverty. So, creativity is not just art and be happy and creative and, you know, go to the museums. No, it is Social justice component to it, this eradication of poverty, you know, component to it. As an economist, you know, I founded the International Child Art Foundation, as an organization that fosters the creativity of children and sees their imagination through the arts, because art is, a, as you know better than I do, it's a very powerful channel. The second thing that I learned is that. Personal or individual creativity is a necessary condition, but it's not a sufficient condition for a better world or a brighter future. And the reason is that creativity is morally neutral. There is malevolent creativity that intentionally harms others everywhere. We see it in from 9-11 attacks to school shootings these days to Ponzi schemes to, you know, elite corruption to everywhere. (laughs) You know, you see very creative people doing very creative things to benefit themselves for self-interest, but not for the interest of humanity overall or even for their society or community. So, what makes creativity positive what can make creativity positive is empathy and empathy is considered the mother of all emotions so our focus has been to inspire children to become creative empaths so they have creativity and they have empathy so these are the two big lessons and then coming to what type of serious problems is it that we face as a country as a society as a community the first big problem is adverse childhood experiences and i must say that 25 years working with children the sad realization that i have is that these aces as you know psychologists call them adverse childhood experiences that they are more common and more rampant than one would expect. You know, from bullying in schools to assaults to racism to school shootings to, you know, even the terror of living with a polluted future. I mean, all of these, they have traumatic impact. And, you know, so these children, they so many children, I mean, our children, I mean, they carry this post-traumatic, stress disorder. And much of the violence and the misconduct or misbehavior, it can be attributed to that. So, you know, so when individuals, they commit a crime or do something, we have to look into what is their childhood. And we have to then come up with ways to address these adverse childhood experiences as early as possible. You know, the last thing is the transgenerational transmission of trauma and hatred. It is that trauma and hatred that is passed from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. Just like DNA or melanin or physical attributes. And this results in the vilification of a group and the hatred of a group against the other group, against the out-group. And unfortunately, even with today's media and silos that we create, they are there to deepen or make more impactful this transmission of intergenerational trauma and hatred rather than to curtail or reduce or offset it. So these are the issues and now, if you like, I can tell you how we have been trying to address
1: them. Please, please do.
0: So for children's or school children's creative development, we organize a school art program called the Arts Olympiad. And any school can participate in this program. It is a program that is free of charge for Title I schools. So any poor students or teachers, they want to participate. We even provide free of charge technical support or any guidance that they may need. So one of the aspects of the Arts Olympiad is that it leads to an art contest. And based on the art contest, we can select some of the artistically talented children in school districts across the U.S., in participating school districts and in participating countries overseas. And then for a week, we bring these children together every four years at the World Children's Festival, which is the Olympics of children's imagination. And the festival is held on the National Mall, right across from the U.S. Capitol, at least three days of the festival. And in this setting of global community, our objective is, number one, that the festival should be such a positive experience that it becomes transformative for the children. And only a positive, transformative experience can wash away the adverse childhood experiences that the child may have you know suffered from so that is number 1 and number 2 that these children they see each other and they can co-imagine and co-create art and communicate with each other through the universal language of art so that they can become empowered to disrupt the generational transmission of trauma so in a sense The purity that we need for a pure, brighter future is what we try to create. Developing mutual empathy is not an easy task. We cannot do it through lesson plans that we do with creativity development. So, the children have to be here in Washington, D.C. And hopefully, when they get the empathy training and they demonstrate mutual empathy... The adults can learn from them, you know, because the adult world is not kind to children. We don't listen to their voices, we don't value their imagination, we have we overlook their creativity and art. No contemporary art museum exhibits children's art as though kids are not part of contemporary world. So that is the world that we live in.
1: Dr. Ishak, I, you know, you've hit on so many important points. And you know, I want to try to organize them in my questions and my responses in a thoughtful way, but I want to start with the last point you made. Why? Why don't we value children in our culture? Why don't we value children's creativity in American culture today?
0: That's a question that is both psychological and sociological, and maybe maybe historical. But I don't know what has happened to us that although all the politicians in Washington, D.C., you mentioned children, and they start jumping up and down, and they say, of course, you know, children, yes, we are all for their education, everything else. But I tell you, my experience over the past 25 years if I ask them for support, they turn away. So, look at it this way. You know, it's very strange, but after a few years doing a national art program for children's creative development, I realized that not a single private foundation in the country supports national art programs for American schoolchildren forget the global program national programs it's all American no 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 I call somebody a philanthropist in Dallas or in San Francisco or in New York and they would say well number one International Child Art Foundation has to be based in in my city and number two most of your work must be for children in my city And our board does not allow for funding outside of Dallas or New York State or California or something or the other. So I think maybe the issue lies with people's misconception of philanthropy or philanthropist's misconception of, you know, philanthropy that they don't understand that to for the brighter future that they aspire to, that they have to begin with the children and that their creativity and empathic development through the power of the arts is a building block for a brighter, more peaceful, prosperous and sustainable future.
1: I wonder to what extent, I mean, you you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's a complicated issue but we do live in a capitalistic society and it feels as though we prioritize capital over creative, which is an interesting choice because of course it's a symbiotic relationship, right? Like capital can't create value without creative, right? There is a symbiotic relationship there. And yet somehow we celebrate capital maybe more than we celebrate creative. And yet Capital cannot make profit without designers and architects and and artists and, you know, all of the creativity that goes into it. And children, you know, to your point, right, we're very hypocritical because we talk about how children are our future and we celebrate children. And yet when you go and you talk to folks, uh, Capitol Hill or well-heeled patrons, philanthropists, you know, there are all these rules or conventions or systems or the status quo that mitigates or creates barriers to the demonstration of our declared values. It feels very hypocritical.
0: As an economist, I mean, I got a PhD in economics from George Washington University. I started my first job at the World Bank and then came back to the university to teach for three years. As an economist, I mean, my feeling is that the concept of capitalism that we have is really for the factory age. In today's world, the capital is much more in human capital than in money. So that mental transition has not taken place that we say, hey, capitalism is based on human capital. You know, we are still thinking capital is based on Wall Street and money and, you know, and the pursuit of money. No, capital is based on human capital. So it's really how creative your children are going to be, how empathic they are going to be, how creative empaths are your employees. And that is what you have to develop rather than, okay, you know, and don't worry about maximizing profits, because once you have a creative, empathic workforce, you will make money and you'll make more money than you can imagine. But, you know, but that is because the product that you have will relate to more people around the world.
1: It's such a key point you're making. I I sometimes catch myself daydreaming, you know, about what kind of world would we have, what kind of country would we have if... From kindergarten up to 12th grade, we had prioritized not just reading and math and science, but we also prioritized languages, learning multiple languages beyond English, as well as creativity, design thinking, arts. Like, what kind of country would we have if kids from K through 12 were also taught? how to speak multiple languages and how to think like a designer or how to think like an artist.
0: Yeah. Do you know, Scott, I mean, you have raised a very important point. All these politicians, instead of bickering among themselves, the question they should ask themselves is, how to develop America into a creative cluster or a creative community? Once that goal and objective is there, then you can foresee what, are the steps that must be taken. But if you are just thinking of, oh, you know, all we need for the progress of the U.S. is to be the dominant military power in the world and to maintain the strength of the U.S. dollar. Well, if the economy goes down the drain after a while, how good is that dollar and how good is that military? Military cannot, it depends on the budget. So I think we need to have longer-term thinking. And that is the problem that capitalism somehow promotes selfish interests. And when one is selfish, you are really short-term thinking and myopia rather than, you know, long-term thinking.
1: Indeed, and that's, that short-term thinking is systemic, isn't it? Because, I mean, if to the extent that we're – so focus on Wall Street. Wall Street wants us to focus on quarterly results, which, of course, mitigates our ability to think long term. And so it's baked into the system in terms of how we're, how we're thinking about things. And, you know, to your point about in a in a worst case scenario where the economy implodes and the dollar implodes, the only people that are going to be able to rebuild that economy and rebuild the dollar are the creative people who are going to imagine how we do that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And You're absolutely right about myopia being systemic because the politicians in Washington, their time frame is two years, you know? So that is it. I mean, if they are saying, oh, what can I do for my constituents this year so the results are out next year? Right. And that is not long-term development of the U.S., and the position of the U.S. in the world at large.
1: Dr. Osaka, have you heard of the book Orbiting the Giant Hairball? Yes, I have. (laughs) You may be the first guest on the show that has actually heard of the book, as I reference it all the time, because there is a story in there, as you very well may recall, that Gordon McKenzie tells, the author of the book, That gets to so much of what we're talking about. And as you might remember, he, in the book, talks about how he would go talk to school kids. And of course, for our listeners' uh, sake, you know, Gordon McKenzie was the chief creative officer of Hallmark Cards. And Orbiting the Giant Hairball is this book about, simply put, sort of maintaining artistic integrity in a corporate (laughs) kind of setting. So he would tell this, he told the story in the book about, you know, he would go and he would speak to school kids as a way of kind of giving back and paying it forward. And he started all of his talks, no matter the grade, with the same question, who here is an artist? And in kindergarten, every kid raised their hand. (laughs) Remember that? Yeah. And then he said each grade subsequent fewer and fewer hands. So first grade, maybe half the class, second grade. Then by third grade, maybe there's one kid in the back that says, I'm an artist. So we're naturally born as kids to be creative. We're naturally born to think of ourselves as artists. And yet somehow we've created a system that by second, third or fourth grade, we've somehow squeezed that out of them. And they're almost embarrassed or ashamed to call themselves an artist. And that is not the kind of world I want to live in.
0: The reason why I got interested in creativity is because the work that I was doing at the World Bank was on entrepreneurship
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and small business development. So as an econometrician, I could look into productivity, but I could not deal with creativity because economics does not deal with creativity at all. And that was my frustration overall with uh, economics. And one question in my mind was, why is it that children are innately creative, but why don't they grow up to be creative adults? The why is a difficult question to answer because it has a lot of different variables. But a more simpler question to ask is, when does that happen? And Torrance, T-O-R-R-A-N-C-E, E-F Torrance, who is today considered as the father of creativity, His longitudinal and cross-cultural studies point to the fourth grade slump in the creativity of children. Mm. So, somehow, up until the fourth grade, just like in the book that you referred to, children are very creative. But then there is a slump in their creativity. And I feel that that is the time when a child wants to embrace the world. But this adult world is not accepting of the child. The adult world tells the child your imagination, no, leave it aside. First, you must read and understand and take the tests. And even the teachers are teaching to the test. So, the child says, okay, if my imagination is not good, I just have to learn and memorize all this stuff to succeed in life. So, that innate creativity it goes down and it's the same thing with empathy you know you know it's a cruel world out there so intrinsic empathy that a child has is you know taken out of that child just to make the child feel secure alone or within the in group you know so you keep the out group as far away and as distant as possible so the programming that we do with the Arts Olympiad, it focuses on children ages 8 to 12, because at that age, they suffer from the fourth grade slump, and the Arts Olympiad empowers them to overcome that slump so that they remain creative throughout their lives.
1: Right. And you're you're being as strategic as you can be, right, in terms of focusing your energy to the a pain point, if you will, right? The log jam, if you will to try to break that open, and you have to be strategic and thoughtful about that. You know, one of the things that, well, there's so many things that resonates about your work, and one of the things for me personally, right, so I grew up, I was born in Gary, Indiana, and I was raised, I'm a working-class kid from a blue-collar family. I went to a uh, public school there in Portage, Indiana, about 40 miles outside of Chicago, right on the the Lake Michigan shore near Indiana Dunes. And I grew up in the 70s and the 80s, graduated high school in 1988. And interestingly, I look back on my elementary, middle school and high school experience with delight and gratitude. I have so many wonderful memories of going to public school. Now why? Well, because at the risk of oversimplifying it, we had a tax base that allowed our public school system to have a robust school educational program that not just included, you know, English, science, math and sports But we had a robust arts program. We had visual arts, we had performing arts, we had jazz band, we had thespians, you know, and I was involved in all of those things. You know, I played a musical instrument, we were in orchestra, we were in jazz band, I was, you know, I was in plays and musicals, I was in art class. And I am who I am today because my public school system from K through 12, had a, call it liberal arts program, wh- whatever you want to call it, but because we had, a, a, we had an arts program that I loved and resonated with me because I was a creative kid and, uh, and had the heart of an artist, so on and so forth. And so I am here with you today in large part because of, in spite of the fact that we were a working class family from a blue collar family, a blue collar family, we're working class Folks, you know, the arts gave me energy and currency and a vision for the world and the life in my life and the future. And that was at a public school. And guess what? I'm 53 now. I go back home from time to time. And it turns out some of my friends that I grew up with are now teachers right at those schools. Okay, so I get to go back and two things strike me. And hurt my heart when I walk into the schools that I went to and loved going to. The two things that strike me, that break my heart now are those schools that I love. They have such fond memories. Number one, they are now like Fort Knox. You can not get into them. You have to go through two layers, maybe three layers of security, because, of course, kids every day now have to worry about active shooters in the building. I never had to worry about that. What does that do to a child's psyche? Talk about ACEs, these negative experiences. This is existential for them, right? This is systemic. This is everyday life. And then they have to go through those doors being reminded in which I did not, I never worried. Not once did I worry about an active shooter in my sixth grade school building. But then they go through, and guess what? All of that great arts programming that I talked to you about, that I grew up with, that I loved, all of that's gone now. It's just defunded, or it's a shell of what it was. And so now the kids that grew up where I grew up don't get that amazing experience that I look back on with such delight and such gratitude.
0: You have mentioned something which is so commonplace and just very profound, you know, Scott. Because the big success in this digital era of these internet-related companies or digital, you know, companies, it has made the education policy makers think that the way to the future is STEM education, you know, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. One thing that they have fail to understand is that unimaginative scientists, mathematicians, technologists or mathematicians, they cannot advance the country. You need imagination and imagination comes from the arts. So that is why some people, they have really started promoting STEAM education with an A for the arts in the STEAM education. What we for the past, I think now 10 years or 10-12 years have been promoting is what we call STEAMS education. So, S-T-E-A-M-S and the S stands for sport. And sport, when children are suffering from childhood obesity, it is important. And sport has also its own creativity and its teamwork to develop empathy. So, you have to have science technology art engineering mathematics and sport for holistic education of a, of a child stem education is not holistic
1: yes and that gets to the very i think important philosophical debate about you know what kind of citizenry do we want in this country do we want one dimensional citizens or do we want three dimensional citizens and and arts is of course science engineering, mathematics, English, you know the critical, important, you know, fundamental. However, the arts and the sports are essential, in my experience to developing that empathetic, community-based perspective because you know sports teaches you about teams and, and working together, arts teaches you empathy and and so on and so forth. So what kind of, of citizenry do we want in this country? and I guess because of the short-term thinking, You know, we can't imagine where this is going 30 years from now if we continue to defund or underfund sports and arts.
0: I worry a lot, I mean, about where the country is heading and where the world is heading. And unfortunately, it's not anything present that one can foresee. I mean, there are some very basic fundamental issues and problems that have to be addressed. And technology is moving so fast. And the imagination of a child and of consequently of an adult has to keep in pace with it. Otherwise, there is this mismatch. So again, to repeat what I had mentioned earlier on, I mean, we could have a generation of you know consumers who are just looking at tiktok sitting on their couches <laughs> rather than you know creating something that is meaningful for others you know so i mean that is the most important thing not that you can't use you know tiktok to demonstrate, you know, some creative product that you have. But, you know, most of the of the people, they are just, you know, consumers. I mean, all they do is they just find some interesting thing and post it <laughs> or forward it to others, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, rather than creating something themselves, because we have to develop a nation of creators. And that means that everybody, their imagination must grow. And fine, I mean, you know, it may be diverse. I mean, so much the better because you know, you know, diversity in thinking can accelerate invention and the fractal of human discovery and innovation. So that is okay. But we have to grow the imagination. I mean, can't just keep on because the world that we are looking into is a very different world than what the world is today, and it's that different world in which our children would live. So we have to equip them to adapt to and participate in and to advance that new world that is coming.
1: Yes, and to be self-reliant, right? I mean, so many of the things that we're talking about with the focus on art and creativity, I mean, I think one of the intrinsic kind of benefits that comes from that is a sense of, confidence, a sense of self-reliance, a sense of empowerment of like, oh, okay, yeah, I can make something out of nothing. I can solve a problem. And it feels like if we're building a world where we can, we have an AI assistant, or we have a search engine where, you know, we can on demand answer our questions or on demand produce something that it starts to erode, I think, our sense of self-reliance. That's my fear.
0: Sure, because all these, you know, large language models, mean they are based on probability. They are not based on truth. So, you ask a question and it will tell you the most probable answer, which may be true or it may not be, be true. So, you need your own imagination and creativity to be able to distinguish. And you need your own imagination and creativity to make use of generative AI or, you know, chat GPT, you know? So, if not, then again, then you just become a consumer.
1: Dr. Ishaq, I mean, what you're hitting on, I mean, I have talked to so many artists over the years, right? And I've asked them, what did going to art school teach you? Because many artists, well, some artists don't go to art school, but many do. And over the years, talking to artists, I said, what, what was the value? Because art school's not inexpensive, right? And what did it teach you? And time and time again, I hear from artists that going to art school taught them how to see, how to see, okay? And over the last 20 years, 10, 15 years, even the last five years or seven years, I've had so many conversations with artists and creatives and designers who, who have that discipline of not just seeing, but critiquing and discerning that we've have been, you know, forgive me for being a bit blue here, but our bullshit meter is very high, right? So so many of our artists, friends, and creative friends can see something whether it's misinformation or propaganda or what have you, we can see this uh, and discern that, you know what, something's not quite right about this. This doesn't smell right. This doesn't seem right. We're inherently discerning and and critical, right? Whereas so many people who maybe don't have those muscles and don't have that capability, they're just accepting the misinformation as truth and what have you. And so, I bring that up only because this gets back to, you know, on some level, the critically and invaluable, priceless, important work that International Child Art Foundation does is because if we're teaching kids about creativity and art, hopefully we're also teaching them how to see and how to discern and how to differentiate between truth and lies.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, but Scott, I must admit... As a person who has been running a children's art organization, I am very disappointed in American artists. And the reason is that over the past 25 years, only one prominent artist has supported the International Child Art Foundation. And that was George Rodrigue from Louisiana, from Lafayette with his blue dog. All the other artists, you know, the big names or even the medium (laughs) name. Artists that we have approached have never never supported, and I don't know why I mean I thought that it would be natural if I was an artist, I would support young artists, and I would like to have both the next generation with that artistic thinking because that thinking is really the problem solving component of it, you know, but I don't know, I don't have the answer i mean. I think that the competitive world in which the artists live today, perhaps they have to do away with their empathy.
1: That's a very sad story. (laughs) I'm heartbroken to hear that because I would not have guessed that at all. I would have guessed that you would have had the support of many American artists. And that's quite depressing. I don't understand that either. Because I mean, so many of the artists that I know here in L.A., are very committed to community, are very committed to working with kids and working with youth. And so it, it's it's very interesting to me that success can maybe be toxic and, and people lose their sense of empathy. I don't know. But that's a sad story. I'm a little depressed.
0: Yeah. I don't know. Maybe they realize that the International Child Art Foundation does not really focus on making children artists. No, we don't. I mean, you know, our program participants are lawyers, doctors, surgeons, scientists, everything. So we are there because we recognize the power of the arts to foster the creativity of a child and to grow a mutual empathy. So perhaps, but earlier on, I mean, I I had maybe mistakenly thought that what we are creating is something that, prominent artists, not only in the US, but worldwide, who would jump on it. But as I mentioned, 25 years, one artist.
1: <laughs> yeah, that reminds me, you know, I've I've sort of said over the years, you know, it's like, you can't have a heart without art. And it's so interesting to me that this is what we're talking about, right? We're talking about showing heart and showing love and, and empathy towards, you know, kids and youth through art, through the power of art. And you would think that that would be more compelling, certainly for artists <laughs> than than what your experience has been, Doctor Ashok I, w- I want to go back because your pedigree and your background is so fascinating. How someone with a PhD in economics from George Washington University who has been involved with the World Bank and it's so many incredible organizations and important work. I mean, what was the moment that you decided to double down? On building the International Child Art Foundation, and walk away from a more you know conventional or traditional path that a PhD in economics might take.
0: Once I came across the fourth grade slump in the creativity of children. Mm-hmm. You know, we economists we are good at writing papers, so I just wrote a brief sort of document, and I thought I should send it to. And then I knew that the art can help children overcome this slump because at that critical age, I mean, you know, it's very easy and it's it's the cost effective, the least cost way of cultivating a child's creativity. So I made all these points in this document and then I said, well, let me send it to the National Art Organization for American Children. And this is in 1996 and we couldn't do Google search because Google didn't exist. <laughs> <You> know, so <laughs> nor did Yahoo. So we looked around, went to the Library of Congress and here and there, and and we realized there is no national art organization for American children. So then the issue was, okay, you know, we have to create one. And art can also connect our children with other children around the world because it's a universal language. So that is why let's have, you know, International Child Art Foundation. And then the other Disappointment, I mean, most of my life I've spent in, you know, Washington. And that is that whenever anything would happen and I'd go to the National Mall, there was nothing for children only on the National Mall. So I said, no, 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 we have to develop a program somehow to get these creative children together on the National Mall. And perhaps they can be the creative leaders of the future, you know, so instill empathy in them. And foster their creativity and collective creativity, the idea of co-creation, because those are the building blocks for collaborative innovation. Okay, so let's have an event. And so we started with an American festival. And then we said, no, 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 no. We really need to have a world festival, you know, bring our children together with them because at their Time And their age would be an age in which it's really a small globalized world, you know, so they are interacting with everybody. So let them already have that experience. I mean, let the American kids be with the Asian kids and the African kids and the Eastern European kids and the Central Asian kids and the Latin American kids. And let them see if they are really all that different or whether they share more in common with each other. And then, of course, over the years, as the internet and the social media developed, that gave them an opportunity not only just to share a transformative experience of the festival, but to stay friendly with each other, possibly throughout their lives. So, there are all these networks, I mean, they have developed, and they develop their own networks.
1: Well, I'm guessing at this point that you have potentially the world's largest collection of child art.
0: Yes. We are the world's largest, you know, children's art organization. And then we do exhibitions. I mean, we do exhibitions, you know, in small groups in, you know, for, you know, companies, I mean, with the children's art and the idea there is to kindle the inner child in the executives, because it's that inner child is the creative child. And unfortunately, most people, because of the way society is, including the adverse childhood experiences, there's a flight from childhood. You know, so, you know, Scott, you look very fondly upon your school age years, but not too many people think very fondly. So they don't want to deal with the childhood or, you know so in a sense, I mean, it's a anti child world
1: that we live in it's like post traumatic stress like <laughs> yeah right absolutely,
0: yeah. absolutely but the creative is the inner child, so we you know do some exercises with the team of business people to awaken that inner child, and then we have you know we do major exhibitions, and you know now we are planning to do something in Uh, you know, Paris for the 2024 Olympics. And there the idea is that the Olympic movement cannot attract creative children because the Olympic movement is, you know, last century's, you know, concept. You know, so they say if you want to participate in the Olympics, either be an Olympian or come to Paris as a visitor or sit on the couch and watch TV. (laughs) You know, that's not what the creative, you know, they want to participate in their own way. So we have a global art contest on children's favorite sport and to uh, launch it from an exhibition in Paris using our own artwork of, uh, you know, children, thereby engaging these creative children into the Olympic movement and you know and Olympic values are, are important. I mean, you know, of, you know, respect for others and, you know, the competitive spirit, the idea of excellence.
1: Human achievement. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> That's and for the sake of it. Human achievement for the sake of human achievement.
0: Absolutely. And you know, so many people don't realize or, you know, know that earlier Olympics, you know, that was developed by Cobertin, that had art and sport they used to give gold medals to artists also okay but it's i think after the second world war that what happened to the human mind and human psyche that it was more physical prowess that you know dominated the scene
1: oh that's fascinating that's a fascinating thought that after brute force and military might defeated the Nazis, that over the last 50, 60 years, the focus and the celebration has been on brute strength and military might versus creative energy and creation versus destruction, right?
0: It's not easy for us to convince the jocks, okay? But, you know, we try to come up and and hopefully, if in Paris, we succeed, you know, then in uh, 28 is in L.A., You know, so it's in your town. So, you know, (laughs) we can do something really significant in in LA at that time. Yeah.
1: Well, yes, let's talk about that. I would love to help in any way we we can if you need a partner here. But going back to the, the Jocks conversation, you know, if there's just a basic ignorance, I think, in terms of how people perceive creativity and how inherent creativity is to everything right? So that running back, that soccer player, that hockey player, they're creative in, in, in how they move their bodies and how they think about the strategy. And yet maybe they don't think of it that way, but, but it is creative. It's a creative exercise. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, who's a very successful defense attorney. And he was telling me that he says, well, I'm not, I'm not creative. I said, are you kidding me? I said, you're, you're, you, know, you, you practice the law, you're a defense attorney." You're connecting the dots in creative ways to make a compelling argument to help your clients win their case. That's hugely creative as far as I'm concerned, you know. But it just goes back to that over – it's either conservative or oversimplistic view of what creativity is.
0: Yeah, because I I think it may also happen that because in school, when they did participate in a creative activity like making art, the feedback they got was not very positive because children, they create their artwork and, of course, the parents love it, but they want somebody else also to appreciate And when nobody else does. And, of course, there is no place where, you know, children can see their artwork being exhibited, you know. So we can't take the children's, the Arts Olympiad winner's artwork and show it at the National Gallery of Art on the, nas- on the National Mall. Because the people who run the National Gallery of Art are all about dead artists. Okay. <laughs> we are right. about future
1: artists. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> so,
0: we arrange an exhibition right across from the National Gallery of Art. And I invite them to come and see. And in the art education also, you know, there's a problem because... So many art teachers would teach children the techniques of the, some masters and then they would turn to the child and say, you cannot become Van Gogh or Picasso. And it's the only field among all the disciplines, it's the only field in which a child is discouraged to becoming better than Picasso because all these People are the prophets, you know, in no other field. I mean, you know, if you tell a technologist that you can't be better than Steve Jobs, you'll say, what are you talking about? then Musk is better than Steve Jobs, for example. Yeah. If you tell a scientist that, oh, the greatest ever scientist which will be there for the next thousand years is Einstein or Newton, you know, they'll say, come on.
1: Right. Well, and it's it's a fascinating point you're making because I have to wonder to what extent, at least in terms of American culture, to what extent that mentality is born of the lack of economic opportunity for artists in our culture, right? So if you're a scientist or if you're an, even an athlete, but if you're a scientist or a lawyer or a doctor or whatever, there's a pathway for you to earn a living and make money, whereas artists – the arts, you know, generally the conventional wisdom is that there's no money there, like you're going to be a starving artist. You need to get a real job. And until art is a real job where people can sustain their, their lives and make a living and afford health care and so on and so forth, you know, I wonder if there's going to continue to be that mentality that says, no, 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 you can't be better than Picasso.
0: Scott, I mean, my last point, I mean, I've not said anything controversial. So far, right? you know Let me say something.
1: We still have time: <laughs> we still let have me. time.
0: <laughs> And let me say something controversial. And as an immigrant and immigrants, they have to adjust to diametrically opposite cultures, so you know maybe there is the insight maybe useful. All American corporations today have like vice president of you know diversity, okay. My fear is that that vice president may actually unconsciously reduce the standard of productivity and creativity in the business. I would much rather them have a design thinker or an artist as a VP so that that vice president has the responsibility of cultivating collective creativity within that business that nobody is doing right now. And that is going to improve the output, the profitability, and the growth of the company. But of course, it's very difficult to convince people because, you know, they go with what is politically correct at a particular time.
1: Well, I'm reminded of that old saying, I'm forgetting now who said it, but it's... uh culture each strategy for breakfast. We, (laughs) and these are generational problems, right? So like, that's why it's so important. The work that International Child Art Foundation does, the work that we try to do over here in terms of raising the flag, beating the drum to say the arts and artists and creativity and creative thinking are really going to be about the only thing that solves the existential problems of our world moving forward. Because until... We have minds that think creatively and think out of the box, so to speak. And artistically, we're going to continue to struggle because they need to have a seat at the table. And that's your point, right? A corporation should have a seat at the table for that design thinker, for that artist who sees the world differently.
0: Different. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Well, I'll tell you what, Dr. Isak, I am so grateful for your time and your talents and the fact that you came today to bless us with them and i know our audience is just going to love hearing this episode and they're going to they i know they're going to want to learn more about the international child art foundation please before we go tell our listeners where they can find you online and how they can support you
0: please just visit icaf.org, so I for international, C for child, A for art, F for foundation, so ICAF.org. dot Our telephone number in Washington, D.C. is 202-530-1000. And we really appreciate any financial support that you can make. It's a 501c3 nonprofit organization. And we are also independently ranked among the 25 top children's charities in the U.S. And these days, we need support to expand our program to Title I schools. I mean, there are too many schools, and, you know, we are a small organization, can't, you know, penetrate many of them. I mean, as I mentioned, I mean, you know, 54,632 Title One eligible schools. It's just mind-boggling. So if you're looking at, you know, social justice or equity or environment, I mean all of these things, creativity and empathy is is important and through the arts we can cultivate creativity and grow mutual empathy. And thank you so much for your time. And Scott, I really, really appreciate your you know questions. Such a pleasure and an honor to be with you. Thank you for inviting me, Scott.
1: Oh, you're so welcome. And thank you for accepting our invitation and coming to chat with me today, Ashwaka. I'm I'm so grateful and so honored to know you. And I will warn you now because I have a trip that I'm planning to D.C. sometime in the not too distant future. So I may have to buy you lunch if that's okay. (laughs)
0: It will be a joy to meet you. I already am looking forward to it.
1: Well, thank you so much. You have a wonderful afternoon thank you bye-bye thanks for listening to the not real art podcast please make sure to like this episode write a review and share with your friends on social also remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes not real art is produced by crew west studios in los angeles our theme music was created by ricky Peugeot and desi delauro from the band parlor social not real art is created by we edit podcasts and hosted by captivate thanks again for listening to not real art We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating creative culture and the artists who make it.